Welcome again to class, and it's great following after Pastor Seth. Now, I was planning on beginning the class with my lecture and then giving way to Seth. I wanted to be like John the Baptist and kind of be the forerunner and get you prepared for the real teacher uh, this evening. But since he was preaching on such an important topic, which is what is preaching, what is the goal of preaching, I think that would be the right foundation. So he began... What an excellent way to begin this class. Seth gives such an emphasis, and his gifting is so much of an emphasis upon evangelism. Seth is an evangelist at heart, and I'm so grateful that I can tag along with him in this class and join him. We are going to be both preaching on uh, preaching, but we're going to focus a little bit different. Perhaps you can look at it this way. You've got exegesis. And you've got exposition. Exegesis is all the tough, hard work you do privately in your study. Exegesis is just a fancy word for Bible study. That's when you're sitting down at your desk, you have your tools, and you're putting the passage together. There's a word for that called hermeneutics, which is the interpretation of scripture. How do I understand what the Bible means? And so hermeneutics is teaching people how to interpret the Bible. What to do when you're on your own in the study. That would be exegesis. But there's another important part of preaching. If you don't have this first, then you're going to struggle with this exposition. Exposition, when you're talking about this kind Exposition is what you're doing in public now. After you did the exegesis privately, now you're giving the exposition publicly. And when you focus on that aspect of preaching, we would call it homiletics. And that's where you're teaching people how to communicate. I think Seth is probably going to focus a little bit more on the second one. And I'm going to focus a little bit more on the first one which would be hermeneutics. Though there's going to be some overlap, of course. Some of you have been in his hermeneutics course. Well, uh, I've taught this course before uh, to some of the young men at our church, and we called it simply Jobs, which is just one book sermons. And I wanted to teach the young men how to teach with just one book, which would be this your Bible, and preferably a study Bible. And throughout this time and the following weeks, I'm going to give you several reasons of why just one book sermons are the best. But I'm going to give you one this evening, and that is arguably the greatest preacher who ever lived since the Apostle Paul preached just one book sermons. Now, throughout this course, I'm going to give you many reasons of why just one book sermons are the best. Now, of course, it doesn't mean you can't use other resources. It doesn't mean you can't use other books. You ought to do that. But the emphasis ought to be on just that one book. But if just this reason alone were given, I think it would be sufficient arguably the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. The greatest preacher that ever lived was George Whitfield. I understand we have Chrysostom and we have Ambrose 
and we have Spurgeon, and we have MacArthur, and we have Bunyan, and we have many great preachers. But I think many would agree that George Whitfield arguably should be at the top. George Whitfield was born in England in 1714, and my daughter asked me this uh, evening, hey, are we continuing to do biographies? I said, no, we have a different course. And she said, oh, no more biographies. I said, little lady, I give so much time reading about these great men. I, no matter what course I was teaching, I'd find a way somehow to get to <laughs> church history biographies. So that's how we're going to begin. We're going to talk about George Whitfield. George Whitfield was born in England in 1714. He had an insecure boyhood, and in his teens, he was raised in a fatherless home with financial difficulty. And I love examples like that because I minister in a place where there are so many fatherless homes. If that's you, that was George Whitfield. That was Timothy. God used a small book by an author named Henry Skugel. To lead George Whitfield to Christ. The name of that book was The Life of God in the Soul of Man. Still in print today. A great little book that you could probably find online for free. God used that little book to awaken spiritual interest in George Whitfield. And after he read it, he wrote these words. God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. Now, by the way, I, I have these lectures in notes form, but I thought about it this afternoon. I thought, I don't think I'm going to give it to you because I just want you to enjoy the class. Look at me. Don't read anything. You can take as many notes as you want. And then maybe at the end of the course, I'll hand out the notes to you. But I'll encourage you to write or just observe and take it in. God showed me that I must be born again or damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that is afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself bankrupt? Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Or... Shall I search it? And I did search it. And holding the book in my hand, thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, thus, Lord, if I am not a Christian, if I am not a real one for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. Every one of you here ought to put yourselves in the shoes right here and inside that quotation and say, is that me? Am I a true Christian? Whitfield came under great conviction. He fasted. He gave his money to the poor. But this didn't help. So finally, he cast his soul on the mercy of Jesus Christ and a ray of faith was given for eternal life. He was converted and he grew immediately. He prayed, he read his Bible, he read Christian books, even though they were very expensive at that time. 
And as he began to preach, by the way, Newton, John Newton, was asked, John Newton, author of the most well-known and beloved hymn in the English language, Amazing Grace, John Newton said the greatest preacher he had ever heard was George Whitfield. Tens of thousands came to Christ. Tens of thousands came to listen to him preach in the outdoors. And when he prepared his sermons, he primarily used three books. His English Bible, his Greek New Testament, which he in many ways taught himself Greek, and Matthew Henry's commentary. Do you know what that is? That's a study Bible. He used a study Bible. He had the English text, and he had some notes, basically, to help him, to make sure that he was on the right track. And he developed a very unique practice of Bible study. Now, I need to say, if we're talking about the greatest preacher in the past 2,000 years, I want to know everything about him. I want to know how he studied. I want to know what books he read. I want to read his sermons. I want to listen to him. We can't listen to George Whitfield. But we can read him. But even there it's difficult because few of his sermons survive. But some of them do. And today, I brought a handout. And the handout is not in my lecture notes, but I decided the handout tonight would be one of George Whitfield's sermons. And it's not just one of his sermons, one of the few that survived. In my opinion, it's one of the greatest sermons ever preached. And as you read through this passage, we're going to talk about this at the end. There's going to be an assignment, and you're going to come back next week, and we're going to give some observations about this sermon. This sermon is so fantastic. It has every aspect of preaching you want. You can just go through this and teach someone how to preach just by reading this sermon. I want to do that. I want to read his sermons. I want to know how he prepared these, how he put it together. This is how George Whitfield studied for preaching. Now you have to remember, George Whitfield was preaching constantly. Two, three, four, five times a day. How do you study if you're preaching three times a day? And this is how he did it. He prayed over every line of the passage until it became a part of his soul. And this served him well later on in life as he often preached 40 or more hours a week and had little time for sermon preparation. And so here's George Whitfield who used primarily his Bible and one commentary to prepare his sermons. He essentially used a study Bible and relied primarily on prayer over the word, meditation, and observation of the text. And if it worked for Whitfield, I believe that it can work for you. And this is what these lessons are all about. Hey, we're in Africa, and we know that as we're ministering in village areas, 
People are not having monster libraries. They may not have the opportunity to go to a school and study. But if they have a Bible and we can teach them how to prepare good sermons with their Bible or something like this. This is the example I would use, a global study Bible. And you can get a hardcover Bible for 100 rand. Teaching them how to do that, that's our goal. So, just one book, Sermons. And where we're going to focus on in the beginning is number one, how to choose a passage. But even before we get that, I want to give another illustration. Because Whitfield was one of the great preachers ever. But maybe in the top ten, and we've already heard his name multiple times this evening, maybe in the top ten would be John Bunyan. And John Bunyan preached one book, (laughs) Sermons, two. John Bunyan was a Baptist preacher in the 1600s that wrote one of the most popular books, Christian books of all time, which was Pilgrim's Progress. And he was imprisoned often for his refusal to stop preaching. Crowds of up to 3,000 came to hear him preach on Sundays and as many as 1,200 came at 7 o'clock in the morning to hear him preach on weekdays. And when he was in jail, they came to his jail, jail cell and he preached through the bars. John Bunyan had very little schooling. He said his Bible and his concordance were his only library. And people used to laugh at him. They tried to shame him. They said, you don't know the original languages. You don't know Greek and Hebrew. And he was not at all ashamed of that. He didn't try to hide it. In fact, as only John Bunyan could, humorously, he said that the evil Pilate knew Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. His point was not that knowing our Bibles in the original language was not important. But he knew his Bible. And as you read through his writings, every line is saturated with Scripture, which is why Spurgeon's famous line, when you prick Bunyan, he bleeds Biblin, or he bleeds Bible. That is how well he knew his Scriptures. And so we want to be just one book preachers. We want to know our Bible. And so the goal of these lectures is to teach you as students how to prepare a biblically accurate and insightful sermon using just one book. And specifically, it would if I could choose one book, it would be some kind of English study Bible, in this case, the Global Study Bible. Now, as preachers, 2 Timothy 2 verse 3 says that each one of us are called to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And I like giving sometimes these mnemonic devices to help us. And so there's nothing biblical in the way this is formed, but I just tried to put it in a way that could help you. So we're going to use this little mnemonic device, soldier, this, these letters together, these, these words to help us in order 
put a passage together. And we're just going to start with S of the soldier. And there's the first one. Select the passage. So here we are. We're Christians. We want to preach. We want to know how to communicate. We want to know how to take the Bible. And I don't even know where to start. I mean, if I want to start teaching at church, or I want to teach at Sunday school, or we have Bible studies at Ole Fons Hook and Tiani and, and Valdezia, and I don't even know where to start. Okay, let's start with the first step. Let's select the passage. Because we're Bible preachers, and so we need to go to the text. So let's begin with this. Select the passage, S. We're going to do that today. If I have time, maybe I'll get to O, which is observe the passage. But then we're going to close our class tonight by looking at that passage and that sermon preached by the great George Whitfield. All right, well, select your passage. And here's letter A, ways to determine your passage to preach on. So how do you choose your passage? Here you are, you're asked to preach or you want to be a preacher. Where do I even begin? Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to know how to choose your passage. And there's several ways of choosing your passage. Let me give you a few of them. Here's the first one. We'll call it sequential verse by verse. The model of verse by verse and sequential is you go in sequence. So the first method would be sequential verse by verse model. That is, this person... The way he chooses his passage is he just preaches through books. He preaches through a book of the Bible, verse by verse, section by section, chapter by chapter, and eventually book by book. I think this is probably the best way to determine your passage, and it's certainly the easiest. If you're preaching from Mark... The first Sunday, you're most likely going to preach from Mark 1, 1 through 7, let's say. And the next Sunday, you don't have to wonder, how do I choose what to preach on? You know what to preach on. The very next section, I'm just going to pick it up on verse 8. Let me give you five benefits of this method of choosing a passage. That is sequential, verse by verse. We're just going to go through the book of Mark. Let me give you five benefits of that. Benefit number one. You don't have to search for your sermon passage each week. You know what's coming up. I know next week I'm going to preach on whatever. Mark 1 verse 8. Because this week I preached on Mark 1. 1 through 7. Now, some of the great preachers didn't do this. Charles Spurgeon didn't do this. The prince of preachers sometimes said he spent more time looking for a passage than actually studying the passage itself. He preached a sermon one time called, There Go the Ships. Has anyone ever heard that sermon before? There Go the Ships. I mean, Spurgeon is fantastic. And the whole sermon was true. Um... He, he said in England, he would go to the sea and he would, he would watch the ships go by. And it reminded him of the Christian life and how Christians are like ships. 
It's fantastic, and he has metaphors, and he has scripture, and he weaves it through, and growth in the Christian life, and sanctification, and the doctrines of grace. It's, it's magnificent. He had his sermon, but then he needed to find a text to attach to the sermon. So he went through the Bible to find a text to attach to that, and he found Psalm 104, verse 26, which says, there go the ships. And that was his passage. That was his text that he used. It was a good sermon. That's not a good method. Benefit number two. People can't blame you for choosing texts specifically for them. You know we're having marriage problems. You know we're having marriage problems. And I noticed that while you were preaching, you looked at us several times. And I noticed, I noticed right when we're having marriage problems, what do you preach on? You preach on Ephesians 5. And you can say, you know, I'm preaching on Ephesians 5, 25 through 31 or whatever it may be. It's because I've been preaching through the book of Ephesians for the past six months. And so I'm just coming to the next section. It is very common that what you're preaching on, people are going to think you're focusing on them. And that is, that's what the Holy Spirit does. This Holy Spirit drives home the sin in our lives. If you're preaching expositionally, if you're going through verse by verse, people will have a more difficult time blaming you for choosing text specifically for them. Which, in, in one sense, isn't wrong at all either. Benefit number three. People understand the context better in sequential preaching. So I'm preaching through Romans right now. We did our 15th sermon in Romans on Sunday. And if this was Seth, Seth would probably be on the middle of chapter 2, maybe beginning of chapter 3. I go much more slowly so we're on Romans 1, verse 21. And we're looking at God's wrath in verse 18. God is angry with the world. His wrath from heaven is being poured out on sinners. And we're given three ways that he's angry. Three reasons that God is angry. We suppress the truth. We do not glorify him as God. And the third one is... We're not thankful. Ingratitude. Well, that's an important background. This past Sunday, I preached on the sin of ingratitude. But I did not have to take an hour or a half an hour building up all the background to get to that one particular phrase. Anga kensangi. Anga lavangi kukensa. They were not grateful. I didn't have to build it up. I took maybe five minutes reminding them. But because of all the background we had, it helps them to understand better. The introduction is not as long. Benefit number four. It protects from hobby horse preaching. If we go through a passage and we go through a chapter and we go through a book... We're just going to preach what the Holy Spirit gave to those men. 
If we don't do that, and we're always preaching on something that we liked, we're going to be tempted to preach on the things that we understand the most, or the things that we like the most. And we're going to more easily avoid those sections of scripture that's difficult. We say, oh, I don't know how to deal with that, or I'm not sure what it means. But if we go through a passage, we're forced to preach on what the Bible says. And then number five, benefit number five, you will eventually teach the whole counsel of God. And not just the whole counsel of God, but you'll eventually preach the whole counsel of God at the right ratio. Acts 20, 27, where Paul says that he declared to them the whole counsel of God. So that's the first method. Where do I even begin? I want to start preaching, Pastor Paul. I'm not going to preach at Trinity in the beginning, but I want to start teaching in Tiani. I can start my own Bible study in my neighborhood. I want to start preaching. But where do I even begin? I want to learn how to preach. Here's soldier. That's going to give us some methods, some tips of how to put together this sermon. But here's the first one. How do I even select a passage? One is choose a book and go through it. That's the first one. Here's the second one. Here's the second model. We'll call it the spirit-led model. That sounds a little bad, and it can be bad, but not necessarily. This man who uses this model preaches on what struck him, let's say, in his Bible reading. Perhaps the idea of God's sovereignty struck him while reading Romans 8.28, and he preaches on that. I don't think this is necessarily a bad method. In fact, Sunday afternoon... At Tiani, I preached on 1 Chronicles 13, one of my favorite stories, the story of Uzzah being struck down by touching the Ark of the Covenant. In my morning worship earlier in the week, I, I must have spent an hour in 1 Chronicles 13. It was amazing. And my wife came out and she said, you're late for something. I said, I know I'm late, but I just don't want to leave. This has been Awesome. And I saw so many observations from the passages I never noticed before. I thought, this is, this is going to preach. And so that's what I preached on. At Tiani. I preached on the story of Uzzah. And it was outstanding. At least for me. Uh, don't be afraid of that. In fact, Spurgeon said on Mondays, he always preached extemporaneously. That means... He would just preach from the overflow, all of his specific studying throughout that week, reading lots of theological books, reading his Bible, preparing sermons, and then when all that was there, we know that as preachers, what, 20% of what we actually study is is being taught. We leave 80% back on the cutting board. But now all the the overflow, he said, on Monday, I'm just going to unleash it. That's what I'm going to do on Mondays when I preach. I don't think this is a bad method. Maybe you read Romans 8.28 and said, I'm going to read it, preach on that. Let me give three benefits of this particular method. Number one, you enter the sermon preparation process engaged and zealous to learn. That is, you're not coming to this because you have to, which would be the first one in a sense, but something struck you and now you're ready to just pull out the best parts. Benefit number two. It promises preaching from a variety of books of the Bible each week. That's one of the arguments that Spurgeon said. 
you're giving your people many different parts. And maybe we could say the best method of preaching is the first method, sequential Sunday mornings, maybe and Sunday nights. But having a time of preaching, and I know Seth preaches so often, I have 12 teaching points during the week. So maybe one or two or three is method number two. Great. Benefit number three, it depends on daily active Bible reading that translates into passionate preaching. It will force you, if you're going to use this method, you can't observe. You can't, uh, uh, you can't ignore, escape your private times with the Lord. Because that's where some of your preaching preparation comes from. Let me give a third model of choosing the text. We'll call it the needs-based model. This man who uses this model teaches on a passage to his congregation who is, number one, maybe struggling in a particular area. He preaches on a passage on purity or prayer because their people are struggling there. Or maybe they're struggling to understand a particular area. He says, man, I've noticed in counseling they're really not getting God's sovereignty. Or what about the Lord's return? When's that going to happen? I've noticed this a lot. I'm going to start preaching a series of sermons on God's sovereignty, let's say. Let me give a couple benefits of that. Number one, you usually are preaching on a topic that the flock wants and that they need. And on second benefit, it keeps the eye of the preacher on the flock. Here's where they're struggling. Let me give some pros and cons, because I think each one of these methods have advantages and disadvantages. I believe the best way to find your scripture passage is to preach the first model. That is sequential, verse by verse. In model number two, what was model number two? What was the second method of choosing your passage? Spirit-led, we would say. In the second model, the preacher may spend too much time trying to find an exciting passage Or he may be tempted to preach on only the things that he likes and understands. And in the third model, which is needs-based, the preacher assumes he always knows where his flock is suffering. When many times, he doesn't know where his flock is suffering. And so when you just go through a passage, someone comes up to you afterwards and says, Man, that's exactly what I needed. I've really been struggling on this. And you think, I had no idea you were struggling on that. But the Holy Spirit does. So I'm going to just preach what the scriptures say. Moreover, as the spiritual leader, he should most often set the agenda of preaching and not the congregation. The congregation doesn't decide what we learn each Sunday. He is the shepherd. He leads the flock. So, choosing the passage. I gave you several models of choosing the passage. And I think each one of those models, I gave you three, have some benefits. And maybe you can use all three. Although, the best model, I think we could say, is expositional preaching through books of the Bible. I think that should be the primary diet. Number two, as we're selecting the passage, all right? 
Now you say, I'm going to preach through the book of Mark, let's say. I'm going to go verse by verse through a book. Now what do I do? Now we have to narrow it down. Let me give you the second point now of selecting your passage. I gave you some ways to determine your passage to preach on. Number two, choosing the pericope. Now I use this strange word, not periscope, but pericope on purpose. It's a word that most of you probably don't know, but it's a good word and it has a good history. Even if you preach through books, you still need to choose your passage. You're not going to preach a sermon on the whole book of Mark. You're going to have to narrow it down. You're going to have to narrow it down to what we would call a passage or we might call it a pericope. Now the word pericope simply means a section of a book. And it comes from two Greek words meaning to cut around. Peri, cope, to cut around. You can't feed a whole cow to a person at one time. Now, recently, my wife and I used the bartering system. We used cash today. Bartering was used in the past, and we purchased something by bartering the other day. Uh, we have a good friend who lives near Zanin, and he's a pig farmer. And we love bacon. And we love chops. We thought, okay, we want to buy this, and he, it just so happens that he needs a German shepherd. And we say, we've got German shepherds, and you've got bacon. And so we bartered, and we said, all right, we'll sell you one of our little pups, a German shepherd, and you sell us some bacon. So that's what he did. And he talked us through how the pig has different cuts and different sections. And so he cut up this pig and he came over and he brought these are the chops and this is the bacon. And over here is this and over here is this. And that's what he did. He cut apart the animal into smaller pieces so that we could handle it. You have to cut around to give a proper serving Size. In the same way, a preacher must cut out a proper serving size for his audience. So let me give an example. Let's take it our Bibles this evening and go to Luke chapter 12. Let me just give an example from Luke chapter 12. Suppose you just finished preaching... On Luke 11, because Cornet, he's learning how to preach, and he's going to use the first method of preaching, which is verse by verse. And for the past six months, he's been preaching through the book of Luke. And now he just finished Luke chapter 11, and he has arrived at Luke chapter 12. And now he needs to choose his passage but here's the question. Where should he cut this animal? Where should he cut this passage? Are you going to preach on the whole chapter? I don't think so. How do we know where to cut? Well, let me give you four or five ways to determine how to know where to cut. Okay, let me give you four or five of them. Number one, follow... Chapter and verse headings. 
follow chapter and verse headings. So you just finished Luke chapter 11. Now you come to Luke chapter 12. But remember, chapter headings are not inspired. When the Bible was given, it was just words. There was no chapter 12 and there's no numbers. Luke chapter 12 and verse 1 obviously starts a new section. Now, remember, this is 99% true. Sometimes it's not exactly right. If you just flip over, here, here would be one example. If you flip over to 1 Corinthians 11, this would be a small example where they might get it wrong just a little bit, at least in my Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to flip back to Luke 12 in just a moment. But 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 2 has the heading above it for me. Does your Bible have it that way? That would be an example where we'd say, okay, maybe a little bit off, because it actually begins in verse number 2, not necessarily verse number 1, but for the most part, if you follow headings and if you follow chapters, it's going to get you in the right section. Seth, this always bothers me. In our Song of Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it, it takes a part of verse 20 and it puts it inside of verse 21, and verse 21 is the most amazing verse, and I use it all the time, but they take a little section from the previous verse. And so I always say, just start reading with this word. Sometimes those things will happen. But for the most part, if you want to know how to chop up that passage, your Bible will help you with that by giving you chapters, verses, and headings. So number one, if you want to know how to cut, number one, follow the chapter and verse headings. Number two, follow section Headings. These are excellent guides, and most Bibles agree, but not always. So if you look, go back to Luke chapter 12 and verse 26. Actually, let's just go to Luke 12, the whole chapter. Now, I checked several different Bibles. I used the ESV study Bible, I looked at MacArthur, I looked at the ESV study Bible, I went to non-study Bibles, I checked many different Bibles, and I found... That one Bible broke Luke 12 into seven sections. Another Bible broke it into six sections. Another Bible broke it into nine sections. Could you look in your Bible right now in Luke chapter 12? How many sections is it broken into? And when I say sections, I just mean it has headings above it. You have nine? You have nine? Anyone else? My Bible also has nine. Nine sections. Okay, someone has ten. Okay, others have five. So right there, you might say, this might mean nine sermons from Luke 12. You might say, oh, that's just, that's, that's too much. I'll break it down to five. Or maybe you say, I want to take a lot more. So follow section headings. Number three, follow one complete thought. Now, sometimes this is very easy, and sometimes this gets quite challenging. Let me give you one example from Luke 12. Look at Luke 12 and verse 13. What is the heading that you see above verse 13? The parable of the rich fool. And where does that end? Verse 21. That's pretty easy. I think a good sermon... Section would be Luke 12, 
13 through 21 because it has one general thought. The general thought is the story of the rich fool. But it's not always that easy. For example, go back to the beginning of Luke 12. Is verses 1 through 12 one main idea? That is, verses 1 through 12 is all about hypocrisy. I saw one Bible that sectioned it that way. The whole section was verse 1 through 12, and it had the heading about hypocrisy. But the ESV study Bible actually breaks it into three sections. This is how my Bible breaks it down. Verses 1 through 3, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verses 4 through 7, have no fear. Verses 8 through 12, acknowledge Christ before men. Now, are these three separate ideas and therefore three separate sermons? Or are these merely three headings of your one sermon and your one sermon has three main points? Well, I don't think there's necessarily a right or wrong answer as long as you understand the main point of the passage. But some preachers like to take larger sections of scripture at a time and others like to take smaller sections at a time. They have congregations that like all the details and fewer verses. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I brought his commentary here on Ephesians. No, this is not a commentary on the whole book of Ephesians. It's on Ephesians 6. No, it's, it's not on Ephesians 6 only. This is his commentary on Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. So he wrote this whole book on four verses. And as Pastor Seth has observed before, these are, these are his sermons. His sermons are just put right in here. Okay? Let's count how many sermons this is. 26. He preached 26 sermons on four verses. That was his style. But not everyone can do that, and not every congregation wants that. I don't think I could preach that way at my church. And I certainly don't have his skill or gifting. So don't just say because Lloyd-Jones did it, I'm going to do. You have to know your congregation. Now, others like to take big pieces of the pie. I think this is a general rule that you can follow. It's not always this way, but I think this is a general rule. Usually, the younger you are, And the more inexperienced you are, the larger sections you take. I mean, not too big, but you take a larger section. And why is that? I think it's obvious. It's because you don't know as much. And you don't have as much to say. Lloyd-Jones can take one word. He, He preached a sermon, but now. From Romans. The text was, but now. Could you preach a sermon like that now? <laughs> and he's just pulling out all of these observations and you're saying, whoa, you got that from the word but. That was amazing. Well, he's an experienced preacher. He was older when he did that. Uh, it's just like a veteran doctor, for example. 
A veteran doctrine, a doctor, a medical doctor, he's been practicing for 40 years. He could speak about the iris, just the part of the eye. He could speak about it for hours intelligently. Whereas a young doctor, a rookie doctor, let's say he can only speak about the whole eye itself for several hours intelligently. That would be the difference. Let me give you a fourth way. A fourth way to cut it apart. And that would be follow conjunctions and other connecting words. It would just be like, Stop signs on the road. You're driving along. How do I know when this ends? Oh, there's a sign that tells me this is where the property ends. And there are signs in the passage that tells you this is coming to an end. Or we're shifting topics here. Let me give an example. Let's go to the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. And this is... This is just an example of the point I just gave, which is follow conjunctions. Seth, I am so used to saying the books of the Bible in Tsonga that when I sometimes say it in my mind, I have to say Tito, Philemon, Vaibero, in order to follow the books. Titus 3. I th- uh, m- most Bibles... Break down Titus 3 into how many sections? How many sections does your Bible break it down into? Mine is broken down into two sections. Is that the way your Bible is? 1 through 11 and 12 through 15. But now you have verses 1 through 11. Should you preach one sermon on those 11 verses? Well, I think this section, 1 through 11, has three subheadings. Verses 1 through 2. And then when you come to verse 3, what's the first word? 4. That's a conjunction. It's moving, it's moving on to something different. He starts out by giving submissive to rulers... Obedient, ready for every good work. This is Titus chapter 3. And now 4, okay, there's a shift. I would say that shift would be 3 through 8. And then from 3 through 8, you come to what word in verse 9? But, that's a conjunction. Now you have verses 9 through 11. Now you'll have to decide. Your skill level Your congregation, how long of a sermon they can take? Can they take a 30-minute sermon? Hey, Lloyd-Jones, he preached for an hour and 10 minutes. I'm going to preach for an hour and 10 minutes. Most likely, you cannot preach for an hour and 10 minutes and keep your people's attention. And just because people don't walk out during your sermon doesn't mean you had their attention. You lost their attention after 20 minutes. They just are trying to be polite, and they didn't walk out. You should have preached for 30 minutes. Why is it that Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, says that the standard should be about 40 minutes? And if you're unusual, and we all think we're unusual, we all think we're great. If you're unusual, you can preach longer than 40 minutes. Why are you preaching for an hour and 10 minutes? 
Let others people, let, unless other people are coming to you and saying, please preach for an hour and a half, 40 minutes. I mean, I was at the edge of my seat. Unless that happens, don't do that. You'll have to know your congregation. Maybe you should preach on all 11 verses, or maybe your whole sermon is 1 through 2. Next sermon, 3 through 8, and so forth. And if you're not sure, I would say this. I gave you four methods of cutting it apart. If you're not sure, and the above guides that I just gave you, those four guides aren't helpful to you, keep reading the whole passage out loud until you're able to locate the proper sections. And again, this is why it's one book sermons. It's primarily focusing on you and the text, reading it over and over. And we're going to talk a lot about this next week in O, which is observation. But don't be afraid to go to your one sermon, your one sermon uh, book, and look at the headings. Get some helps. Look at the study notes. Well, it's important for us to prepare our sermons well. And even the greatest of preachers have made the error of not putting preparation into preparing their sermons and they've gone to regret it. You'll, you might remember the story of John Elias. This is one of the last characters I preached in our uh, church history course. He tells a story about how he went to a particular church and he preached on a passage and it was really well received and it was amazing. And he got a little bit prideful <clears throat> and he decided not to take time in preparing for his next sermon. They said, oh, you've got to preach tonight. You've got to come preach. Preach this is an amazing sermon. Listen to what he says. This is about John Elias. He yielded to their entreaties and instead of taking a sermon which he had prepared, soldier, he took quite a new text. And the name of the text was, it is good for us to be here. He had read that text, apparently, it is good for us to be here. And he said, I bet you on the fly, I can just preach a sermon on that. Passage. I mean, did you see how well I was received at this other church? They loved me. So I'm going to preach a whole sermon on it is good for us to be here, and I bet you I can make it work. And venture to trust to his extemporizing powers so as to preach without giving the subject any further consideration that he was able to do during the time occupied by the person who prayed before the sermon. Now remember, Whitfield was constantly preaching extemporaneously, but How did he originally prepare for those sermons? By internalizing it and praying over every word of the text on his knees. When he began to preach, he soon discovered his own deficiency. Have you ever preached before and you realize somewhere in your sermon, this is not insightful. Yeah. I haven't put in the work. It's a terrible place to be. You're in front of everyone and you realize there's nothing insightful about what I'm saying right now. Now, if you're not a preacher, you probably don't understand this. But if you are a preacher, you probably can understand this. And this is where Johnny Lies was behind that pulpit. And felt 
that he had been guilty of a great sin before his God in presuming to preach his word to an immense assembly of perishing sinners without bestowing sufficient reflection upon the subject invoking a blessing. His self-sufficiency and presumption met with their reward. He was unable to manage the subject. His powers seemed to fail him and he was obliged to stop short his sermon. And when he finished it, such as it was, he fell down upon his knees in the bottom of the pulpit, covered with tears and prayed to God to give him grace that he might never again be guilty of that kind of presumption. That's why we're learning this, this, that's why we're having this course. We don't want to be here. You hear a great sermon preached and you say, that was amazing. It's amazing how he just gets up and exposits the passage. You know how he was able to exposit the passage if it was a good sermon? It's because he did the exegesis in his closet all by himself. He did the hard work so that he was able to exposit the passage. Both of these are important. Now, take out your handouts. To perhaps the greatest sermon, one of the greatest sermons ever preached by perhaps the greatest sermon a preacher ever. Now, I need to give a disclaimer. Because I'm going to, or we're going to, read a sermon. Can we do justice at all to George Whitfield, who could be heard from a mile away, who could be heard by 10, 20, 30,000 people without a microphone? Oh, I was at a funeral on Saturday. There's about 50 people in the, um, in the tent, and they had to use a microphone. They had to use a microphone with 50 people. Whitfield preached to 20,000 people with no microphone. But we are reading his sermon. So you're just going to get a glimpse. I want to read this quote. I've read it before. But this is a good idea. Because they say here that the preacher was for his day and for his time. He is not a man for history. He was a man for that moment. Listen to what they say. The greatest factor in the sermon is the man himself. His spirit, his soul, his face, his eyes, voice, his hands, with all his movements, are essential parts of the sermon. And the effect produced is due more to these than to the accumulation of ideas and words which we call a sermon. That is... But the dead cannonball, the real sermon is the cannon. That's Spurgeon. Spurgeon's the cannon, and boom, he shoots out that sermon. And now we're just observing. Look at that cannonball. But we don't have, we don't have a cannon here with us today, which is Whitfield. The real sermon is the cannon, the powder, the fire, the ball, the momentum, the crash, the catastrophe. The difference between two printed sermons may be very great. One is the sermon of a preacher who made but little impression upon the people of his day. The other is the sermon of a man that was followed by thousands wherever he went. 
The first sermon may appear much superior to the second in thought and expression. The second contains but the most common truths in ordinary language. The comparison between them, we say, is futile. In other words, he says, how do you explain when you have two sermons side by side and they're great expositions, that is, they're great studies, but one soars and one falls flat? It matters little how they appear now. The chief element is gone. The man, the body, the soul, and spirit are gone. So with that said, let's take a look at the cannon ball and not the cannon. Now, this sermon is so fantastic that this is the way mine looks. Okay? These are my, these are my notes on this sermon because I've read it so many times. <laughs> Here's your assignment. We're going to read through it. We only have a few minutes left. And what we're going to do is we're going to practice. We're going to read through the first page. But I would like you this week to read through the sermon. Now, it was originally nine pages, but I wanted to condense it to a number of pages. So I broke it down to five pages. So it's a little close. The word, there's not as much spacing, but don't be intimidated by this. Let's just go through the first page. And what I would like you to do is a couple things. As you read through the sermon, every time you hear or you read Whitfield allude to a passage of Scripture, he quotes a passage, he alludes to a passage, just write CR in the margin, which stands for cross-reference. He never or very rarely ever gives the passage itself. He's so full of Bible, he's just quoting scriptures all over the place, and there's going to be times where you're going to say, is he quoting a passage, or is he just alluding to a passage, or is he using three words from a verse, but then he's adding his own? He's so full of scripture. And I would like to see how many times you think in this sermon, of course, he has no notes when he's preaching. He's standing on a stump. He's got 20,000 people. He's in the open air. There's people in the tree with trumpets blowing, trying to distract him while he's preaching. They have tears coming down their faces. People are coming to Christ everywhere. And you'll know why when we read this passage. It's full of Bible. So I want want you to write down C-R. And then the second thing is, every time, and by the way, that is this point right here, L, which is link your passage. One of the most important parts of preparing a sermon is linking it to other pieces of Scripture. Uh, Second is, every time you see him take a passage and apply it to his hearers, just write down application. Okay? Let's try it. Page number one. There's his text. Luke 19, 9 through 10. There is a sense in which, and this is what the great preachers do, there's a sense in which you read the sermon and you say, this is so simple. Do you know what Whitfield does? He just starts in Luke 19, verse 1, and he just goes word by word. Takes a word, explains it. Takes a word, explains it. Takes a word, applies it. Takes a word, applies it. And he just goes through the passage, and then he's done. It looks simple, but it's not. All right, first word of the passage salvation. is fitting. That's right, Colin. Salvation. Isn't that fitting? 
Because that's what he loved most more than anything else. He was an evangelist. He was an evangelistic preacher. He can't even get one word into his sermon without talking about salvation. Salvation. Everywhere through the whole scripture. So already he's being biblical. He's pointing to the scriptures. Is said to be a free gift of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. His first sentence of his sermon. Gives more about God and Jesus Christ.